Our uh, sermon passage this morning is from 1 Samuel chapter 11. Then, Nab- uh, then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes, and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days respite, that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then, if there is no one to save us, uh, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of, of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people were uh, wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they are weeping? Uh, so they told him the news of the men of Jabesh, and the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messenger, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that not two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Amen. All right, a lot of action going on here, and we are in a very critical historical moment in the book of First Samuel. We see the judges' uh, era has passed away, and now Israel wants a king like other nations, so the very first king of Israel is Saul, and he has freshly been proclaimed king, as we saw last week, and uh, immediately the testing began, if you remember. Uh, some people followed him, a lot of men of valor, a lot of mighty men. Uh, God put in their hearts to follow him. And then some men questioned and said, shall this man save us? Remember, they said, can this man save us? Well, that question's going to be answered today in uh, 1 Samuel 11. So let's look at verses 1 and 2. Let's notice this thread again that we see the people of Gilead are under. Verse 1 says, Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabeth Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. 
But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes, and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. That was his ultimate goal. This man, Nahash, by the way, the name Nahash means serpent or snake. A lot of analogy here we'll talk about. And yet, uh, in light of this siege, what do we see the people do? They, they, they say, okay, we're, we're surrounded. The enemy's all around us. Um, looks like more suffering is to come. Let's make a treaty, right? A treaty. What is a treaty? The, the, the definition from the dictionary basically says a formal agreement between two or more states in reference to peace or alliance. Basically, it is let's make a deal, right? Let's, let's bargain. Uh, let's come to an understanding. <laughs> That's what they're saying to this, this, this fellow. What they learn is you cannot bargain with tyrants. Um, it, is, it doesn't work well. This, this guy, he is ruthless. Like I say, again, his name is Snake, uh, Serpent. And his heart is set against the people of God. And it's in his heart to bring disgrace to the nation of Israel. That's really what he wants. As a matter of fact, this is, this, he's been on a rampage. Um, if we look at the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, the, the, the Qumran scroll has an extended reading of, of this 1 Samuel 1.1. I just want to read it for historic. It gives us a great, uh, uh, valuable historical insight, along with Josephus, who also says the same thing. Uh, in one of his writings. And here's, here's what it says. Now Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, had been oppressing the Gadites and the Reubenites grievously, gouging out the right eye of each of them and allowing Israel no deliverer. No men of the Israelites who were across the Jordan remained whose right eye Nahash, king of the Ammonites, had not gouged out. So we, we see this as a track record. We, now, now, remember, there was the, the, the tribes of Israel were on the north and south side of the Jordan River. And so he's evidently moving uh, along, coming up from the, the, the tribes of Reuben and, 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 and Gad, and he has just been wreaking havoc here, it says. Um, and historically, again, it's been um, validated by Josephus as well that this was what was happening. And so, so what do we see? We see this, this fear. We see that the temptation is, well, let's make a deal with such a ruthless enemy. And we'll serve them. They'll be, they'll be nice if we serve them. It'll all work out. And they do strike a temporary deal, which is pretty interesting. Look at verse 3. The elders of Jabesh said to him, give us seven days respite and, and, that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. Now, that's a strange request, right? And you don't think it's going to be uh, taken because it's basically saying, well, give us a few days here before you go out eye-gouging and uh, let us send out cries for help. <laughs> let us send out cries for help and maybe someone will come and help us. And strangely enough, old snake says, you got a deal. Yeah, strange, right? Remarkably, they get two things here. Seven days to have eyesight, seven more days, right, of grace, basically, and the opportunity to call for help. Now, that's because Nahash believes two things. Number one, he believes that they will not find help, that they probably will not find help. And then number two, in all of his pride and arrogance, he believes that whatever help they do find, he can quickly defeat and add to his spoils. 
So, hey, bring on another little army. I'll defeat them as well and have even more spoils for my army. So notice what happens is this team of messengers now goes throughout all of Israel, uh, city by city, crying for help. Uh, we see the news reaches Saul, verses 4 and 5. Notice this. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now, Saul, uh, now, now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. That's interesting. Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. What was he doing? He was doing farm work is what he was doing. You know, this again is the meager beginnings of a monarchy. And uh, well, they just started this thing, uh, haven't had a lot of taxes and revenue. And so he had to be a bivocational king. He's bivocational. He's a farmer by day and king by night. This is what he does, right? And, and so Saul's literally coming in from the field after a hard day's work and he hears the news and look what happens. And Saul said, what is wrong with the people? I love that. It's reminiscent of R.C. Sproul's quote, right? What's wrong with you people? That's kind of what he said. What is wrong with these people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. They told him what was going on here, this terrible, terrible snake who had besieged the city. Well, look at verse 6. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words. And his anger was greatly kindled. This is reminiscent of David in the Psalms when he, when he talks about his, he is angry when he sees the wicked disobey the law of God. It, it makes him angry to see sinful, rebellious people going against the, the law of the holy God of Israel. And this is a godly anger because the Holy Spirit is the one who, who moves upon him and it's, it's, it's this godly indignation against this wickedness. Now, there's a debate that has been raging for centuries over whether or not Saul was a genuine believer or, or genuine convert. Many people ask, was Saul really saved or, or not? And when we look at Saul's life, whew, there's a lot of questions that are going to be coming as we go through this book. And you're going to say, wow. And I'm not here to actually answer that, but there is an interesting thing here. There's an interesting point to be made by the, the, the Hebrew words used in this verse. And I just want to take a second to point that out because what we have in this verse is the word Elohim, the spirit of Elohim came upon him. And Elohim is the general name for God, for those outside of the covenant. Those pagan nations would say Elohim, uh, just general people would talk about God in a general way, Elohim. From Genesis to Daniel, this is interesting, from, from Genesis to Daniel, we see the phrase, the spirit of the Lord came upon so-and-so right? It's 11 people from the book of Genesis to the book of Daniel. It is said about them that the Spirit of God came upon them. Out of that 11, all but two of those times, the covenantal name of God is used, Yahweh. Yahweh is the personal, intimate, covenant name of God for his people, Israel. Yahweh, the Spirit of Yahweh, so I, I put a little chart. I get, there it is. Yeah, uh, you see this. I mean, people like Joshua, Othniel, Gideon, Jephthah, Samson, David, Ezekiel, Isaiah, all of these people, it was said the spirit of Yahweh came upon them. That's the covenantal name of God for his family, his chosen people. Two of those people, it says, the spirit of Elohim came upon him. And that was Balaam, 
and Saul. And Balaam, who was a non-Israelite, he's described as being outside of Israel, but he was a prophet, but he actually ended up wreaking havoc upon Israel. And then, of course, you have Saul. Again, I'm not saying anything here. I'm just saying that's interesting, isn't it? It's, just, it is, it's interesting. Okay. <laughs> but notice what Saul does as a result of hearing this news. And by the way, you said, well, then he had to be saved because God uses him. You know, God can use anybody. God can use a donkey. Yes. And he did that. Matter of fact, Balaam's donkey. And, 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 and God can use wicked Pharaoh when he wants to. God can move upon anybody anytime and use them. And so, they, again, there's not evidence that, that Saul would have been a, a genuine believer. But at any rate, God has provoked him to godly anger. He's using Saul for a purpose. In verse 7 and 8, Saul basically institutes the draft. Look what happens. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territories of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Talk about a, a forced draft. I mean, this was pretty much a draft that you didn't have a choice here. I mean, you're, you're coming to fight. And uh, to use the agricultural animal, this oxen represented pretty much the, the, the Cadillac of farm equipment during that time. Very expensive, very hard to take care of. You had to keep those things safe. And, and they were your livelihood. And what Saul's saying here by chopping up these oxen and sending pieces around to people say, hey, this is going to happen to your your, your, your oxen if you do not come and fight with Samuel and myself. And again, he does include Samuel, the man of God, uh, who is at this point, Saul is still such a brand new king, and Samuel is still the leader of the people. He's still the prophet of God that people have heard and listened to and will follow. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah, 30,000. Again, that's simply explaining that some lived on the south side of Jordan and some tribes were on the north side. But all of them together, 330,000 man army. Now, the Gileadites received this good news. The messenger goes back, gives them the good news. Hey, help is on the way. And not just a little help. This is, this is huge. That is the second largest army of Israel ever mentioned in Scripture, by the way. So look at, look at number, verse 9 here. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead. So it says, take this back to the men of Jabesh-Gilead. Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. Literally, he's saying, by the, by the afternoon, when the sun is hot, the battle's over. You're free. That's what he's saying. The battle's already done. So, so that's important. When the, messengers came, uh, uh, um, when the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore, the men of Jabesh said, tomorrow, now here's, look at this, tomorrow, they tell this to snake eyes, tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. So what's happening here? Transition. So what's happening here is there's two vital pieces of military intelligence that was just delivered to them. The first one is a confirmation of armed uh, 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 intervention. Confirmation of armed in intervention, right? The, the cavalry is coming. And number two, the time of the attack. They knew that it was early morning because by noon it's over. So it has to be within that, that early watch uh, of from 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. in the morning. And so they immediately... Uh, 
begin to initiate this military tactic of misinformation, spreading misinformation. That's just the military tactic. That's what they were doing. Some would say, oh, they, were, they lied to him by saying, hey, tomorrow, just tomorrow at this time, and it's probably afternoon, tomorrow at this time, we'll gladly surrender to you. You can do whatever you want to us. What does that do? Well, it puts the, the men of the, the Ammonites at ease. They're going to rejoice and party all night and say, hey, we've got it. we got it made. They're not going to be on the lookout. They're not going to be uh, 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 vigilant. They're going to be vulnerable. So let's take it up to verse 11. And the next day, Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch, the morning watch, 2 to 6 a.m. And they struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that not two of them were left together. They did this tried and true military plan of dividing the army in three, coming at all different fronts against the army that was not expecting them, and they had victory. Now, again, that's the human aspect. We know that God brought the victory. God is the one who moved and brought the victory. So, glory be to God. We see verse 12 and 13. That's exactly uh, what happens here. Notice this. Verse 12. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring them in, that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day. For today, look what he says, The Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Now this is a very important passage of Scripture here. Very epic in the sense that we see probably for one of the last times, a humble Saul giving glory to God, realizing I didn't do this. I'm just a far, I just came from behind an ox and I was hiding behind the bags just last week. I, I was in the, in the luggage. God did this. God wrought this great victory. And, and therefore he, he points out that it's not about Saul's honor being vindicated, as some of these people are saying. Hey, vindicate your honor, Saul. They said bad things about you. Now you've got the power. Put them to death. Not about my honor. It's about the glory of God. It's about his honor being proclaimed. It's about his name being made magnificent. And so what a lesson for all of us. I mean, whatever we do, whatever victory we have, whatever success in life we have, we cannot forget everything we do is by the glory of God and, and by the power of God, by his strength in us. And to glory goes, all the glory goes to him. Now, wow, you're thinking, well, good night, Greg. This is a quick sermon. We've already exegeted the whole passage, and we have. But here's preaching, by the way. Preaching is reading the text, proclaiming, proclamation, exegeting or explaining the text, right? That's what we just, we kind of explained it as we went, but then it's application, applying the text. And so that's what we're going to do now. I just want to make a few quick applications based on this for us today, okay? So I want to make two basic applications. One is general and one is personal. So the first application is, is just a quick general application. In general, we see and we learn how not to respond when we're being besieged by a hostile and ungodly culture, okay? So the church, the people of God, that's us, right? And that's who Israel is also. By the way, this, this, this is us. Why? As, we, as we watch Israel, that's just a model, a picture for all of God's people. 
and all who believe on Christ are God's people. And so, so we are besieged. The, the church today is besieged with a culture that is hostile to God and his morals and his truth. And so how do we respond when the culture is attacking the kingdom values of our king and they want to disgrace his name? Again, the enemy, the general of all of the world's armies, Satan himself, the serpent, oh snake, right? He's, he's, he's still attacking God's people. How do we respond? Well, many in the broad church in general are responding by, by making a treaty, right? That's the response of most of the church around the world to these hostile besiegements. It's, it's hey, let's make a deal. Let's come to an agreement of some kind. Let's make a treaty, okay? And so they're making deals and bargaining with the culture, and, and they're affirming what God condemns, and they're calling acceptable what God forbids. That's the deal. The problem is, the problem is, the treaties are always going to be one-sided because Satan doesn't want to make a deal with God's people. He wants to defame the name of God at all costs. And the enemy accomplishes his goal by disgracing God's kingdom, by disgracing the very name of God. When we make friends with the world, folks, when the church shakes hands with the world and begins to lay down and compromise on some of the truth in order to be accepted, in, in, in order to save themselves from some pain or, or uncomfortable situations or persecution, we have basically, without question, committed adultery, idolatry. We are worshiping ourselves more than God. We're worshiping our comfort and our coolness and our acceptance with the world more than we are God, the eternal king, who rules the kingdom in which we will live for eternity when this kingdom is gone. Sorry about that. All right. Am I on? Well, great. That, that old snake. Anyway, um, we're going to keep going. The truth is, make no treaty with the enemy. That's the answer. That's the call of Christ to his church. Make no treaties with the enemy. Make no treaty. What do we do instead? We stand. We, we stand by God's grace firmly in his law, in his commands, and waiting on our Savior. We, but, we, but we stand firmly. Juana Poyola. Juana Poyola is a pastor in Finland. In 2004, this brother wrote a book simply explaining the biblical institution of marriage, simply using God's words to, to affirm what marriage is. Marriage is between a man and a woman. He goes on to affirm in that book that gender is also part of that. God made them male and female. Simply explaining that. And in that book, he did mention that therefore homosexuality is outside of God's natural design for his people. All of this is God's law. All of this is God's word. Same thing, by the way. When we say, when we say God's word, God's statutes, God's laws, God's testimonies, God's precepts, that's all God's 
word and his law is it's synonymous now here's the kicker you say why are you bringing this up 2004 that's just 17 years ago right 2021 17 years later the the uh, prosecuting uh, the general prosecutor for the for the country of finland is now pressing charges against pastor poyola charging him with hate crimes against the state and it has been picked up, and the trial is in January. This is coming up, folks. This, this trial has worldwide implications for the church. Why? What has happened here? You've got a, a faithful brother who, if you see this guy, one of the most gentle, soft-spoken uh, brothers you could, you could hear, loves people, and in no way was, was being belligerent or angry. He was simply lovingly stating the Word of God. This is the standard by which God has ordained things. That's all he was doing. And now he's on trial as a, as a hate monger and charged with hate crimes against the state. I, I would ask we pray for that. Uh, the Alliance Defense, uh, what is it that you're working? Alliance Defending Freedom has picked up the case. Other uh, worldwide uh, Christian law firms are are going to be helping uh, with this case, defending his, his rights. But still, we got, we've got to pray because the enemy is going to continue, right? We, we, we know that it's been this way from the very beginning. It will always be this way. So I'm just telling us this, folks, because we're living in a day where Christians need to wake up and realize that if we name the name of Christ, it's more than just a social club we belong to. It's not just going to help our credentials in our neighborhood anymore. It's not going to help my political career anymore or my, my standing in the community or the PTA board. To be a Christian today is not a badge of honor as it once was in America. It's quickly becoming a time where we have to decide, am I going to make a treaty with the enemy or not? And I want to encourage us as God's people, make no treaty with the enemy. As a church, let us stand faithfully, loving people, yes. And, and by the way, by the way, remember, remember this, as, as we talk to people and live in this world, it's those people that we're, we're dealing with, they are not the enemy themselves, folks. They are fellow hostages in need of rescue, just like us. That's why we proclaim the name of Christ in love and, and graciousness. But that's also why we stand firm on the moral truths of God's word. Because if we make a treaty with the enemy and compromise that truth, what are we doing? We're giving false hope to people who are stuck in bondage. They're saying the church affirms my sin, I'm okay. Folks, that is not love. That is the worst kind of abuse we could ever give to this world. The greatest love we can give to this world is to stand on the very words of the eternal God who will judge all men and women one day. And the greatest love we can show them is Christ died for sinners rest in him be transformed by his grace and find genuine freedom in christ but let me move on quickly here and, and move to a personal app that's the general application but let's move on to even more important matters okay let's cut deeper there's a, there's a worse enemy for for us and that is sin Sin is our greatest enemy, folks. Make no treaty with the enemy. You see, we are good at making hidden treaties as individuals. We can stand, oh, we can all amen what I just said about the worldwide sin of, 
homosexuality or abortion or, or things that, that, that we can all jump on the bandwagon. But what about the secret treaties you have made with sin? That disgraces the name of your heavenly father. I mean, what did the Gileadites say? When the going got tough and they were tempted and they were fearful, they said, if there's no one to save us, then we will give ourselves up to you. If there's no one to save us, then we will give ourselves over to you. And what we say many times as Christians, as individuals, when that sin is besieging us, well, nobody saved me. I'll just give myself over to this sin. You know, I can't help it. <laughs> you know, I'll make a treaty with it. We'll make a deal. I'll do a little of this, and I'll still look good on the outside. Whatever, whatever deal. Folks, here's what we've got to admit and know as believers. There is someone to save us. We cannot use the excuse of the Gideonites. There is a Savior. He has saved us. And He continues to save us. There is a way of escape from our sin. What I'm saying, folks, is there is no excuse for us as individuals to ever make a treaty with the enemy, which is sin in our lives, in our heart. Never. No, no, no reason. I mean, what, is, what does the Bible say? in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Look at this. Memorize this. Put this on your mirrors and, and your houses and everywhere. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Yes, everybody is tempted. You're right. We can use, the devil uses this in our lives. He's such a snake. Well, everybody, you know, it's common to everybody. Pornography is running rampant in our society. And in, in most churches, our, our response is, oh, you know, everybody, you know, by the time you're five years old in this world, you're going to be subject to pornography. So, hey, it's just everybody's battle. What? Folks, that is a treaty with the enemy, that attitude. That's just one example, folks, of, of, of what we do. We, we, we allow this to be twisted. Well, everybody does this. I can't help it. You know, God made me with an attraction. So it's just, I'm just doing what God meant. What? We, we rationalize sin like crazy. And every time we do, we're simply making a treaty with the enemy. So even though no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to everybody else, God is faithful. You're not faithful. I'm not faithful. But God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. There is a way of escape. Basically, that, that's, that's God's way of telling us you do not have to sin. You do not have to make a treaty with the enemy on any level. I mean, the Bible's clear. There can be no treaty with sin. There can be no agreement with sin. No deal. No bargain. There can only be mortification. You say, what in the world is mortification? It's just an old Puritan term for putting to death. There can only be a death sentence for the sin in our lives. We, we have to kill it. We can't make a deal with it. We can't play with it. We can't 
We can't say, okay, one little dabble here, one little dabble there. No, we must kill it. As John Owens famously said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Sin is a destroyer. The only thing we can do, if you know there is a poisonous snake crawling in your bed, you're not going to say, well, let's make a deal. I'll sleep on this side and you stay on that side. No way, man. You are going to kill it. You're going to chop its head off. You're going to get rid of it. Because you know, ultimately, it will bite you and it will kill you. And this is what Romans 8.13 is all about. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you you put death, uh, but if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So think about this. Paul is saying you've got two choices: you can live for sin out of your flesh, or by the Holy Spirit that you have within you. You have the power to put that sin to death and live by and in the Spirit. Now think about this: Nahash was a ruthless, eye-plucking maniac right? And we can easily condemn that guy. But he's not the only one. For one thing, he's not the only one that radical throughout history, even up to our recent history. Just 75 years ago, you have men like Joseph Stalin, Adolf Hitler, other men who just, who, who lived out that same genocidal mania, Joseph Stalin, Joseph Stalin, a human being just like us, newsflash, with the same heart that you and I have, sinful. Look what this this man said. He said, to choose the victim, to prepare the blow with care, to slake, basically to purge, or or, I'm sorry, to quench, that would be that, that word, to slake or to quench an unquenchable vengeance and then go to bed, there is nothing sweeter in the world. Joseph Stalin, wow, what evil to think about a victim, to devise torture and pain and whatever you can pour out on that victim and then quench that unquenchable desire to give pain and then go to sleep. Nothing sweeter in the world. He said. He said, man, yeah, I'm, I'm not that guy. Are, 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 are you not? Folks, listen. We all have the desire. We all have that thirst for revenge, if we're honest, that need for vindication, right? Wanting to give that person a piece of my mind, wanting to see them get theirs, wanting to see them get what's coming to them, We all have that down here. It's the same sin, folks. We may not have the resources of an army, but we kill people, James tells us, with our words, our tongue. We hate them with our hearts. We call them fool and other angry names, as Matthew tells us. And and Jesus said, that's murder. You just murdered that brother or sister in, in, in your heart. 
So folks, here's the point. The, the enemy is sin, and sin is within. Sin, the enemy is within. All of us, the deeds of the flesh. And we don't talk about this enough. We've, we've got to get back to this Puritan idea. And I, I don't mean, you know, the Puritans had a bad rap. Man, they, they lived and celebrated and had more joy. Why? Because they slayed their sin on a regular basis and lived in the freedom and joy of a clear conscience toward God. Galatians 5, 16, 17 says this. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. This is just, this is, this is just wonderful practical advice from the Apostle Paul to Christians. You say, I don't want to sin. I want to slay my sin. Okay, then, don't walk after and gratify your flesh. Don't give in to those things. Don't put yourself in those places. Instead, walk by the Spirit. And he goes on, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. You cannot make a treaty between the Spirit and the flesh. You've got to choose one. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Speaking to Christians, we know the context there is we want to please our king. So how do I resist making a treaty with the world around me and the sin within me? How do I resist that? By replacing your love for sin with a love for the law of God. Now, I know this sounds very strange to some of us who grew up thinking, well, the law of God, that's all just dead formalism, and Jesus did away with the law, the commands. We don't got to keep commands. It's about Jesus. It's just about the cross, and that's it. Again, we saw last week, Christ died for us to make us righteous in the sight of God, yes, to forgive us of all of our sins, yes, because we could not keep the law perfectly on our own. But now that we have Christ in us, it's not I who live, but Christ who lives in me, I can now keep his commandments for his glory, by his power, by the Spirit. Thus, walk in the Spirit, and you will not give in to the deeds of the flesh. How? You've got to replace our loves. You can't just stop sinning and think it's going to be okay. You can't just take a habit out of your life. Or I'm going to stop doing this and then go on. It's, it's going to come back sevenfold, folks. We must replace that behavior with godly behavior. Put off the old man and put on the new. And, and King David understood this. I just want to close with, with three Verses, but I encourage you before I read these verses to read the entire chapter of Psalm 119. Now, there's a lot of verses there, well, over 100. <laughs> but I encourage you to, in your Bible reading plan, read some of this every day. Just read it. 10 verses here, 10 verses, just keep reading every day. What a powerful antidote to sin. And in a chapter of God's word that will just cause our hearts to long after and fall in love with the law of God. Look what David said. God's law is life. <laughs> wow. That's different than some people would say. Oh, the Ten Commandments, the law of God. No, man, that's, that's binding and that's constricting and that, that's legalism. And that, no, David said, no, the law of God is life. 
Turn from sin and submit to God's law and have peace of mind. Wow. There's a lot here, folks. Turn. Let's repent. Turn from sin. This is, this is an action on our part. We have to make a decision. We have to stop doing some things. We have to stop putting ourselves in certain positions. We have to stop looking at things, listening to things, hanging with certain people, whatever that is. We as God's people, if we truly have a love for him, must put the effort in here and turn. And then look at the replacement. I turn from that master of sin and I submit to my heavenly master, God. Turn from this master to this master. That's, that's the replacement idea. I, I'm no longer going to serve my sin. I'm never going to live for, I'm going to live for God. I'm going to turn to him. And I'm going to have peace of mind. Peace, real genuine peace for the believer only comes when we are in fellowship with our heavenly father. Look at Psalm 119, 167, what David said. Many are my persecutors and my adversaries. He was surrounded by a culture that hated him. <laughs> but I do not swerve from your testimonies. Do you see that? That's an admonition to us to take that first application I gave. The world around us is attacking all of our values. The world around us hates the values of God. That's just natural. But we are not of this kingdom. We're of a godly kingdom. We're of the heavenly kingdom. Therefore, when the world persecutes us and our adversaries are all around us, we do not swerve from his testimonies. Again, that's just a synonym for the word of God. His commands, his testimonies, his precepts, his statutes, they're good. They're right. I will not swerve when I'm attacked, but I will faithfully stand in those testimonies. Psalm 119, 161 through 162. Princes persecute me without a cause. Leaders, government officials persecute me without a cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. Why is David not affected when the enemy attacks? Why is David not giving in to the peer pressure to make a treaty with sin, to get along with sin or, or those who promote it? Why? Be, be, because his heart is in awe of the word of God. He's in awe of God's love for him. How does he know about God's love for him? He's in the word. He sees the perfect law that God has given him to keep him safe. And even though, again, as I said last week, we do not earn that joy by keeping the law, but we, we do enjoy it. And I, my quote just went out the window, but we don't earn it. The law doesn't give us that joy, but it helps us enjoy it by keeping the law. It's good for us. And David knew that. He said, this is why my heart is on God's word. It's, it's I'm in awe. And again, how many Christians today can actually say we're in awe with the word of God? We're just enamored by the Bible. We're more enamored by celebrity preachers and little, little quibbits and snippets on Facebook of, of little phrases and wow, did you hear this? And then we are enamored with the very eternal word of God itself, which is him. The only way we're going to know him and be enamored by him is be in his word. Look what he goes on to say. I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. I rejoice in your word like one who has just found a treasure. Do you have that? Do I have that? 
This is where we must pray. <laughs> we must beg God for an appetite, for the grace, for his spirit to just move in us, giving us this love for his word. And in closing, just let me say this. I mean, there's a lot here I know and we could continue, but here, here's, here's a closing thought. We stand steadfast as believers. That's what we're called to do. Be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. That's what, that's what the command is for God's people. Be steadfast. Make no treaties with the enemy. Be steadfast. Be faithful. Not in our stubbornness, though. We cannot try to be steadfast in our stubbornness, in our need to be right, in, in our desire to win an argument. Not that. We stand steadfast in our awe for God's word. That's what we stand steadfast in. Stand steadfast in the love of God's word. You've got to be reading it in order for it to fill your heart and mind and it become the most precious thing in your life so that you're not even distracted. This is the point. We are so enamored by God's promises and his word. We know that nothing in this world can take away our, our cause to be uh, invalidated, the promises of God. And we're resting on those so much that, yeah, the bullets are flying around us and people are, the world's gone to hell in a handbasket, as my grandma used to say. And, and yet, what, what are we doing? We're enamored with God because we know the end of the story because we're reading it every day. That is our strength. That is our strength. You want to stop sinning? Replace your desire for sin with other things. Now, let me give you, I'm not saying that you just have to read the Bible. There's what the Bible gives us the, the principles. This is very quick. I got to go here. I'll just throw this in. This is a practical application. Very quickly, I guess I could show this. It doesn't mean that we just go like monks and I, I take the Bible. I just walk around all day. Uh, you want to go eat? No, I'm going to feed on the word. Uh, you want to go watch a movie with me? Oh, that's a pagan holiday thing. I can't go watch a movie. It's sin. I'm not saying that. But as we read the Word of God, it gives life to us, and direct, the Spirit leads us into all truth. And we see these principles. What are the principles? The, the Puritans they had all this stuff, man. They, they, why? They love the Word. <laughs> and they lived by it. They didn't just read it, and it wasn't just compartmentalized in their life over here. All of their life was holy unto God. Every vocation they deemed as holy unto God for the Christian. At, well, maybe there was a few exceptions, I'm sure. Like a brothel owner had a hard time obviously bring glory to God. But you understand my point. For the most part, for the most part, I'll let you settle down. <laughs> yeah. For the most part, though, vocations were holy, right? Whether you were a truck driver or, or a CEO of a company or a, a, a whatever in the good way. But Here's the point. Where do we get that idea? Well, Paul said, if a man doesn't work, neither shall he eat. We see all through the scriptures this ethic of work. It began in Genesis. Man was made to keep until the garden, till the garden, the garden of Eden. That's before sin. So work comes before sin. We, we, see, that, we see that all through the scriptures. We are made to be productive and active and busy. So what is this old phrase that kind of, again, was birthed in the Puritan era? Idle hands are the devil's workshop. It comes from the fact that the Bible also talks about the slugger and the lazy. They're going to get in trouble. If you're sitting around doing nothing, giving yourself idleness, you're going to be attacked by the enemy and you're going to end up doing some things and getting into habits that you shouldn't. 
What, what is one of the principles of God's word? If I love God's word, I'm in God's word, I'm going, to be, I'm going to be encouraged to do productive things for the glory of God. And I'm going to say, well, I could look at this thing for the next hour, but I'm going to go out to my wood shop and I'm going to build a cabinet for my neighbor. That doesn't sound very holy. That's because we get the wrong idea of, again, what it means to read the Bible and be directed by the precepts of God. It is a holy work. If I'm saying, I want to be busy, I want to do things and get my mind off of sin because I want to do things and make this thing redeemed, this action. I'm doing something. I'm being productive. I, I'm, I'm doing something that I like. I'm doing something that I'm good at. And I'm going to use this to bless other people. You see that, folks? I hope we, that's just one example. But we can live a life in this world holy unto God, but we can only do it if we're saturating all of our motives with the word of God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. Without it, we are aimlessly wandering in this world, and it's one opinion against another. But Father, we thank you that you have forever settled truth, and it is contained in your word. It's there, all of it. And this is our guide. This is our authority. And this is our safeguard against sin. Father, put it into our hearts, your people, those in this room who are, are genuinely converted and your people, put in our heart to make no treaty with the enemy in our own hearts and in the world around us. Let us steadfastly love your law and live it out for your glory. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.